she saw him leave that morning, but he didn't come back that afternoon. He didn't show up that night. Nobody heard from him. The teen's body was found in a rolled up gym mat in a high school in 2013. His death ruled accidental. Say my name and remember what you've done. Your hurricane has blackened out the sun. You can't continue to kill unarmed black people and get away with it. But if Kendrick did die of an accident, how, with all that distrust, how could you even ever show that? But then on the flip side, is they didn't treat it like it, it could have been a homicide. Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Polk announced officials were reopening the investigation. Only angle is to find justice for my son. You are currently listening to Ashes to Ash TV, Season 3, The Investigation of Kendrick Johnson, Episode 2, Day 1. So one of the things that's really important to these cases is to really talk to any witnesses who were on the ground on the days surrounding the events that happened. So one thing I wanted to talk to Lydia about, and just a reminder that Lydia is KJ's aunt, was about the day she found out and the Johnson family themselves found out that Kendrick had passed away and I wanted her to go into some detail about the events that followed after finding out this information. So when I sat down with her, I made sure to ask those questions. There's a lot of division in the community. You could tell friends who were once friends are like, y'all need to just let it go. Oh, you're not a friend. You can go over there with that. I mean, I done lost friends behind this. I, I ain't talking about riding by the corner. Like on the corner, when we used to sit on the corner, people used to ride by and, and just hurl all kind of slurs. You, y'all need to go to work. First of all, boo-boo, <laughs> I kept a couple of jobs. I made this one of my main jobs with my sister to make myself available because this was my nephew. We ain't sitting out here just collecting nothing, okay? I ain't on no assistance or nothing. I worked, and I was going to school for cosmetology. I hate that, like, there was something else you were saying yesterday, oh, about him having a good family. Like, oh, yeah. the fact that you have to defend it's that. It's just, just the perception of people thinking that all black people right. did not grow up in a two-parent home. Kendrick did. So one thing I was really surprised by is to hear Lydia talk about some of the things that they had to defend, which I didn't feel that were very important to this case. So I don't feel if KJ had a good family has any bearing on this case. KJ went to school and something happened to him at school. So the family's not on trial. The family didn't do anything wrong here, yet it seems like they have to defend that they're a quality family. And that's really upsetting to me. I wondered if that was something that happened in a lot of cases. So one person that I wanted to sit down with was a professor at Valdosta State University who is not only an associate professor in history, but also African-American studies. So I thought maybe he could give me some insight into to why um, the Johnsons have to defend who they are when that has no bearing on this case whatsoever. Well, I teach uh, African-American history and African-American studies. You know, professors don't get to choose where they go. They're, you know, they, they just kind of go where the job is. And I, uh, I came here in 2010. I have been here ever since. I have moved around a bit from the city to the county and now back to the city. I think people at the university have a unique relationship with the city we are seen as transients, we don't really count as locals. Even those who have been here for decades, you know, they're not from here oh, because okay. they're at the university. <laughs> they came from somewhere else. But I have been able to, to fit in just fine, I think, I think probably because I am from the South and I am from a place that looks very much like this in Louisiana. So 
um, I know all the, the, the cultural codes of, yeah. of, of being in the South, so. Uh, me and Brie were talking about on the way over here how we think this case itself is going to be not only an education to us and African-American, uh, the community, and how the things are being impacted, but also the South. So I think it's one thing we like to take on things we don't understand so we can understand them better. Right. I mean, it, it really is. It was a great book in the 80s by a guy named William Chafee called Civilities and Civil Rights. And he kind of describes, he's, just, he's talking about um, Greensboro, North Carolina, but it very much fits here, too, that the South is super nice. They are very kind and and they kind of are ingratiating. At the same time though, that kindness is kind of a veneer for all the ugliness underneath, kind of the bless your heart kind of thing, which sounds nice, but is really a, um, a daggerful insult. So there's a whole separate language yeah. uh, that, they, that they use down here, to be sure. As someone who is from the South, you grow up in a racially restrictive situation but you don't realize it's happening. As a white, hetero, cis man with every privilege on earth, I mean, you don't, you don't notice that as you grow up. You don't notice that you are largely segregated away from the black population. And then you go off to college and you look back at your hometown from a distance and you are shocked at kind of what you experienced. And that dynamic was always very interesting to me. Yeah, no, it is, that, that is actually a very interesting point because I think that sometimes it's really just ignorance not realizing it's happening because you are distant from it the whole time. I, I, was, I went to college at CU Boulder and there was a comedian out in California who, in the, I was sitting in the audience, asked me where I, I was from and I said Colorado and he was like, oh, you go to college? And I was like, in Boulder. And he's like, oh, you probably have never seen a black guy before, which it was kind of funny, but you think, I mean, I think back like, to my yeah, college, well. you don't think anything's wrong or anything's happening because you don't see the problem right in front of you. Right, and it, <laughs> so you, you hear about racism, you know it exists, but you're like, it can't exist here. Well, in the city, we are majority black. In the county, we're not, but it's still between 35 and 40% black. And that kind of mixture, it kind of forces, forces you into racial considerations that I think other places can kind of conveniently ignore. So after talking to Thomas, I really wanted to get another perspective on racism in Valdosta. So I thought asking Sheriff Polk would be a good idea. I think we have two people who are in very different industries who are very ingratiated in the community. So I thought I'd get his take on racism in Valdosta. I think one of the things I was most surprised by is how different their answers were. I have a limited knowledge of the community. I've only been out here once before, but do you feel like, I, I see a lot of things on social media, it's like, oh, the most racist, Georgia's the most racist place, or Valdosta's the most racist place. In your experience, do you see that? Do you think the community feels that way? I don't see it. I mean, maybe I see it from a different perspective. I mean, I've never worn a gun. I'm out go anywhere in this community, night or day, without a weapon. Um, I don't feel uncomfortable anywhere in the, any, any facet of the community. I mean, I just don't don't um, have a problem. I mean, like, like down here, you know, we're probably 40% minority. Out of my six top-ranking people, um, three are minorities. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see quotas. I don't see anything like that. I mean, people do their job no matter what color they are. And I stress very, very much, we were the first um, sheriff's office in Georgia to have body cameras. They're, they're needed. Oh, absolutely. Because they, they tell the truth. I mean, the truth needs to be there. I mean, because People would, you know, you get complaints this business and, and a lot of the atmosphere you know, changed in, in law enforcement. And a lot of it's law enforcement's fault. 
you're always going to have some problems, but as far as this being a problem in this community, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. none whatsoever. Do you think that the the history of racism, and this obviously goes back um, to even like Mary Turner's time, you know, I know that's a hundred years ago, but do you think that fear in the African-American community causes sometimes distrust with law enforcement? Not here. Um, I, I've seen it um, other places, and like I say, law enforcement, some of them have done a terrible job of, um, you know, making them available. I mean, it's, it's like this office here, my door's never closed. I don't take appointments. I don't care what you are, whether you're the, a laborer or a millionaire, you walk in that door, you, you can walk in this office. And, um, and of course, me being raised here, I mean, I have a, a I know all those families, I mean, like the Johnson family, I mean, her, her side of the family I've known 30, 40 years. And um, so um, I, you know, maybe um, we're kind of a new, unique place, you know, the way that we do it. But I, I know a lot of other sheriffs around here that uh, have a good relationship throughout the community. And, and, and we, we, we make a conscious effort to make people know we're there to help anybody at any stride of life. Back to our conversation with Lydia. And you can't fight against everybody about this because they got their own opinions. Yeah. So that's when I stepped back and I stopped reading the comments. Oh yeah, you have to. I, I stopped like. reading the comments and I was just like, you know what? Let people talk. They didn't know Kendrick like we knew Kendrick. They didn't know Kendrick on a personal level like his mom and daddy did. I can't come to the phone right now. Please leave a recorded message and I will get back to you as soon as possible. Um, yes, my name is Ash Patino. I'm calling in regards to a documentary series that I'm working on about Valdosta, Georgia and the Kendrick Johnson case. I see that you conducted the second and possibly third autopsy on Kendrick Johnson and we were hoping to speak with you about that. No time to grieve, they showed us a picture, an autopsy picture of Kendrick and that just sent us straight into work mode. It was hurtful to see, cause that's not Kendrick. The picture that we hold up downtown, <laughs> that wasn't Kendrick. This is Kendrick, but who is this? And then at the, the funeral, I, 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 I rarely remember it, remember the funeral because I, like I said, I was jumping into work mode with my sister. No time to grieve, no time to take nothing in work. We got to work. We got to get this out. And we worked to get the name out, worked to get the story out. And we got the story out. We did. How long after Kendrick passed away were you guys told it was an accident? I think the autopsy came out in April. Okay. April 2013. Mm -hmm. I think it came out then. That's when we found out that they say it was positional asphyxia. I just wanted to break in here and give everyone a brief description of what positional asphyxia is. This was not a term I was extremely familiar with when I started this case. So although we're going to go into a lot of detail about what this is and what this causes, I would like to start out with just a brief definition so we can all get a baseline for what is positional asphyxia means and so we all have a decent understanding moving forward. So I just took this definition straight from Wikipedia and it says positional asphyxia, also known as posterior asphyxia, is a form of asphyxia which occurs when someone's position prevents the person from breathing adequately. 
positional asphyxia also may be the result of a policing technique known as prone restraint used by police, corrections, military, or healthcare staff. People may die from positional asphyxia accidentally when the mouth and nose are blocked and where the chest may be unable to fully expand. Accidental. About like what the sheriff and the detective told us when we were at the Board of Education. They came straight in. We don't, we don't find any signs of foul play. You don't think it's odd that a child rolled up in a gym mat in high school is foul play and he bleeding? Yeah. And he got bruises? Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the things I want to clear up here is some information on the day that Kendrick was found deceased. So that's January 11, 2013. So the Johnsons, some point earlier in that day, find out that KJ has passed away. So Jackie's actually at the school at that time. At some point, they all move to the school board so that they can wait and get more information from the school and detectives that are working on the case. When Sheriff Prine comes in to talk to the family, he immediately alerts them that he noticed that there was no foul play involved. And I think some, some of the things that are a little bit upsetting about that statement is that the security cameras at that point had not been reviewed yet and no autopsy had been concluded yet. So I think where the red flag comes in for me is it's a really strange death. So I would think from the get-go you'd want to be open to all possibilities, whether it's murder or accident to make sure that you dot your I's and cross your T's because this is such a strange death, you'd wanna make sure you had your information correct. But to even further my concerns is, I don't feel like it was really treated as a crime scene from the first moment when they walked in. And I feel like Polk even defended this. And what do you think, um, I know you weren't the sheriff when KJ uh, died there, but do you think the investigation at that point was handled well and the way it should have been? I think the sheriff's office, the people that in the field handled it, most of them worked for me, were trained under me. Um, you know, there was several things said about, you know, they didn't wear shoe protection, things like that. That didn't have anything to do with this case. It wasn't a bomb situation where there were fragments around, things like that. And I actually had calls since I was the former sheriff, and one of them said, well, there was blood in the gym. Well, if you ever play basketball, a three-day-old gym will have blood in it. And, I mean, those samples were taken. And I continue to ask Lydia. Did you feel like there was ever a really thorough investigation no, done? No, I never felt like it was. Yeah. I felt like they just took this and just, they took this cover for somebody and just threw it up on the rug like this will go away. It might go away to y'all, but we're not letting it go away. Yeah. No, we're standing 10 toes down for hours. So it's over for you, but it's not over for us. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about when you originally heard that Kendrick had passed away? Normally when he, when Jack could get off her route, Kendrick, if he didn't have football practice or basketball practice, track practice, anything like that, he rode the bus home and he rode to the bus shop with Jackie. She saw him leave that morning, but he didn't come back that afternoon. He didn't show up that night. Nobody heard from him. It was a basketball game at the school that night. Nobody heard anything. It was in the new gym, not the old gym where he was found. She still, nobody heard from him. So about, I think it was like four something in the morning, she had already posted this. I, I got up and I looked, checked my Facebook page, and I saw a post that she posted 
and it said, Lord, my child, my child. That's what the post, that's what the text said. But she said, Lord, my child, my child. That's it. He still hadn't come home. So I called Jackie and I was like, can't you still not show up? She was like, girl, no, you know, we just talking now. We just, then we start joking. I say, I say, you wait till he get home. I say, we gonna tear his ass up. And you know, we just joking and whatnot. And then the next morning she get up and she go do her route. My birthday is January 15th. So this is January 10th, which was on a Friday. I had planned a, a birthday dinner for myself to, to bring all my friends together, you know, to help me celebrate my birthday. So Jackie went and did her route. I went and got my nails done. As I was coming back from, when I, when I was leaving the nail shop, I got a phone call. And the person on the other end was like, um, you okay? I said, yeah, I'm good, why? Not, you know, not taking that, not thinking. She was like, you sure? I said, yeah, why, what's going on? I'm driving now. So after a while, the person says, well, I just got word that they found Kendrick dead at the school. And I was like, wait, what? She said, yeah, they found Kendrick dead at the school. So I'm in the middle of traffic, in the middle of traffic. And my, um, my phone rang again, and it was another person on the other end. It was like, Lydia, you all right? And I was just like, what are y'all talking about? What's Kendrick, my nephew? And after a while, it was just, I, I, was, st- I was driving, and I just stopped in the middle of the road, and I just broke down. And I, the first thing I said, somebody did this to him. Loud High School now. There's a dead, dead body out here. Okay, where at, sir? Loud High School in the old gym. Somebody did this to him. So I got home, barely able, I was barely able to make it home. My eyes were so clouded, like just like clouded with tears, couldn't see nothing. By the time I got home, my family had met me there. My mama met me, my family showed up. And that's when I knew it was real. That's when I knew something really had happened. And I probably, I, pro- I probably cried for probably a whole full hour straight. And then I thought about it. I was like, wait a minute, my sister need me. My sister need us. So I jumped up to get dressed and they was like, no, you need to calm down. Blood pressure, I know it was sky high. But I couldn't sit there knowing that my sister's over there on the other side of town somewhere getting this news about her son. So they, they let me get dressed and they took me to um they took me to the board of education. When I got there, my sister was sitting in a wheelchair. She was sitting in a wheelchair, slumped over like, this is real. Kendrick is, and I'm looking around the room and his family, all of our family. And I'm, and it, and I just, I lost it. I had to, I, I, I wanted, I needed to go back home, but I knew I needed to be there with her until my other sisters came. It was, I, I, I'll never forget that day because it was just like, yes, it, I could, I could see it as if it was just like yesterday. And then after afterwards, Kenyatta came in and they they were talking to her and they tried to get her to identify him by his shoe. 
but his shoe is not him. How is she going to identify? Yes, they, those might be his shoes, but she needs to identify him. They never let nobody go identify his body. So that could have been anybody. We're back in the, in the, uh, at the, the Board of Education, and the sheriff, he came in, and he was like, well, um, for all we know, uh, we didn't find any sign of foul play. He said that that day? Yeah, he said it that day. He did, and then Stride Jones came in and said the same thing. They had already made it their mouth. Case closed. Not today. No, something happened to him. How did he end up in that mat? What are the cameras showing? Why y'all want to go look at the camera and see what happened the day before? Because y'all know something happened in there. I know something happened and y'all know something happened in there. And I just kept saying, yeah, something happened. Something happened in there. And um, they still wouldn't let nobody identify the body. So I'm sitting with my sister after Sheriff Prine said that he found no evidence of fire play. My sister, out of, it's almost like she had, it's almost like she she got up enough strength to tell them, y'all killed my child. Y'all killed my child. Did, I mean, and you guys had known at that point kind of the circumstances he was found under. Mm-hmm. Meaning being... In the mat? Yeah. No. Oh, you didn't even know that yet. I didn't know nothing. Wow. All I heard was Kendrick and dead. Okay. You gonna, you think this, this is what we're going to accept? No. Did anyone in the family think that that could even be a possibility? An uh, accident? Yeah. I, I don't know about them. They, if they even had the, the thought that it could have been an accident, knowing who Kendrick was. Kendrick, Kendrick didn't do dumb stuff. Like, <laughs> it, dumb stuff to him was just, like, beneath him. So why would he put himself in a situation like that? So one thing I want to make really clear here about Lydia's statement is she said that the cops didn't let anyone identify the body. Now, is what she is speaking about specifically is January 11th, 2013, the day that they were notified that Kendrick was found deceased at the school. They did not let anyone identify the body at that time. Later on, they do allow someone to identify the body, but on that day, even though the cops saw no sign of foul play, they were unwilling to allow the family to identify the body. So the family never got to lay eyes on KJ on that January 11th when they very much wanted to. After I speak with Lydia, I call Bree. Hi. I've got some interesting news. So I'll start with how it started. So remember how I told you... Dr. Anderson, the one who did Kendrick's second and third autopsy, had called me back? Yeah. So he's in Orlando, so I don't think we'll be able to interview him this time when we go out, but he said we could interview him in May. So I just want to break into the episode really quick and remind everybody to subscribe. If you do choose to subscribe on the website, all that money just goes back into solving these cases. So every single penny that we get from subscriptions literally goes back into us getting interviews and traveling and doing the work necessary to make these shows so that we can get in tips so that we can get to answers. So if you're considering subscribing, please do. It helps us out quite a bit. If not, the show's always free because that's how we get in tips. So please keep watching. If you do become a subscriber, you get to get discounts on merchandise. You get to see the episodes early. Uh, You get to see commercial-free content. You get to see uncut and behind-the-scenes interviews from time to time. And you get to be part of our private Facebook subscriber group. And what's nice about that is you can often ask questions or we have private Q&As with that group. So if you want to get really involved, it's a great way to get involved. AshesToAshTV.com A-S-H-E-S-T-O-A-S-H-T
tv.com. And now back to the episode. So we drove all the way up from Valdosta this morning. We're now in Atlanta. It's gonna be a long day. It is gonna be a long day. It's gonna be a good day though. Yeah, I'm excited. So we're going to see Marcus Coleman, who is, seems like he's kind of been a spokesperson of the Johnson family throughout this entire investigation. Yeah, I kind of feel like it'll be interesting since he's a spokesperson with the family to kind of get, you know, obviously we spoke to Lydia already, but to get the family's take on what's happening. I think one of the things most interesting in the news is there's been this rumor of a tape that has out that apparently it pretty clearly says that the person on it hurt Kendrick and they're wondering or they're saying that they're basically will be caught eventually. And the family from the news report seems pretty convinced that it's the key to this. From what, I don't know, that's just what I interpreted from the news. So I'm curious if it is, is it the, the break everybody's been waiting for or is it something else? So I kind of want to ask him about that, what his thoughts are, if he feels good about it or if they're kind of like, well, we're hopeful, but we're not sure. Yeah, definitely interesting. He seems like a very, um, driven and passionate person. Yeah, what, and you found today that he used to work for Al Sharpton, was that it? I think so. Something like that? Some type of uh, yeah, we'll have to ask him. organization that involves Al Sharpton, at least. Okay. Yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of know that history. Yeah, because you wonder how he got into this initially, how he got connected to the Johnsons. I think that's going to be a big question that I have is how that relationship came about. And then just how he feels, how the Johnsons feel. So he was kind of telling me on the phone that he felt like their outreach was a big part of why the case was reopened. So kind of finding out how how they fought through that, why he thinks they reopened it, if it was because of this tape or if there was just other information that needed to be really looked at. And if he's hopeful that it will come up with a result that that everyone can live with, I guess is probably the best way in this case to look at it, because I'm not sure everyone's going to be satisfied no matter which way it goes. But it, well, at least for the family's peace of mind. I think that would be the most amazing thing if there was a, an answer that the family could live with. I think that would that's going to be the hardest part here. And I wonder too, that's one question I think we should ask is, are, are the police communicating with them on a regular basis? How does that work? Or is he just kind of like fighting blindly? Or is he talking to Sheriff Polk? Because that's my understanding is Sheriff Polk was integral in the process of reopening the case too because he had to kind of give his blessing. So did Marcus go to him and talk to him about it or how did that come about? Or they hadn't spoken and they both just had the same motive or what, how that came about. So I think that'll be interesting to know. If he thinks the case is having issues because Kendrick was black or does he think it's more just because it's a confusing case? So that's interesting. I think that'll be uh, helpful to know what, why he thinks that's so confusing. Or is it a mix of everything? Is it a mix of the fear, the racism, and the case being confusing? Is it all of it combined? <laughs> yeah. Or is it one thing, you know? It, does he believe it's one thing that's causing it not to be solved if it was a murder? And would the, if, if that is the case, is it racism that he thinks it is? I sit down with Marcus, spokesman for the Johnson family. Let's go back. How did you get involved in this case and with the Johnsons initially? I'm the founder and former president for Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network in 2006. Okay. Uh, I've since moved on due to creative differences. 
and have my own human political civil rights organization, Save Ourselves. But at the time of Kendrick's murder, I was the acting president for NAN, Atlanta. Okay. Met the Johnsons and got involved. One thing I really got to credit the Johnsons is because shortly thereafter is when I had some difficulties with the organization. They actually came along with me and wanted me to continue being their spokesperson and you know their organizer, even though they were literally up under National Action Network. So it really meant a lot to me. Uh, that's been, uh, I don't know, seven years or so now though, but uh, that's how I met them. So when you started working with the Johnson family, what were some of the the things you initially heard? Like what, what did they come to you with or what did you learn about the case, just through your own research? At that time, uh, the autopsy had not even been complete. And uh, there was a kid found rolled up dead in the gym. Family sent him to school with a book bag. Next time his father saw him, he was in a body bag. At the early ons of the KJ movement, you had a lot more support locally down in Valdosta. Mm -hmm. The odd thing was then Sheriff Prime. Sheriff Prime came out with Kendrick's death being accidental publicly, mm -hmm. but there had been no autopsy to be completed. And so, of course, that's the flag right there. Then, of course, the autopsy supported what the sheriff said. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been with them eight years. So, it's, you, know, it's, it's, you know, during that time, it was almost like a no-brainer, right? Oh, yeah, no, this is bullshit. It's going to be taken care of. When Lowndes County closed the case, stamping it accidental, kicking CNN reporter Victor Blackwell out the office. Hey, Sheriff Ryan. Hi. Victor Blackwell, CNN. Chris Ryan. The Sheriff's Department has denied a cover-up, but we took the Johnsons' concerns to Lowndes County Sheriff Chris Prime. Got some questions about the Kendrick Johnson case. I'm not going to discuss that with you. Why not, sir? Because our case is closed. The family has some concerns about why some things were not taken into evidence. There was blood on the I'm wall. I'm discuss the case with you. And what, why is that? Because I don't want to. Then, less than a minute after he'd invited us in... What did you not understand that I said? I'm through talking to him. He ushered us out. Thank you, Sheriff Prime. We then thought, okay, well, this is that good old boy, Red Clay, backwoods of Georgia. Once we have more eyes, you know, it will, you know, be exposed. Well, Kendrick's case just grew and grew and grew. People don't understand. Well, first of all, Kendrick was not just missing every organ in his body. He's also missing his entire tongue and his entire windpipe. He's literally flesh and bone, right? Stuffed with newspapers and nice little magazine articles. That was stated that it's not illegal, but it's not in the best practice. Black folk and low-income folk and people of color seem to sometimes get the not of best practices. Ashes to Ash is created by Ash Patino, associate producer Kate Giordano, production manager and co-host Bree Blankenfeld. Title music is Bones, performed by Eight Graves. Don't forget to subscribe on the website for commercial-free content, early access to episodes, 
uncut interviews, and discounted merchandise. Just go to ashestoashtv.com. A-S-H-E-S-T-O-A-S-H-T-V.com. If you have a tip or information, please email us at ashland57 at gmail.com, A-S-H-L-A-N-D-5-7 at gmail.com. We can absolutely keep you anonymous. If you know of a legal activity involving this case, please reach out to your local law enforcement. To follow us on Facebook, please go to Ashes to Ash True Crime. To follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, please go to Ashes to Ash TV.